Dear God, I thank you for each person here. We are grateful for the many blessings you give us. Lord, we do lift up the church around the world. We ask for your protection and leading, for your power, for, your, uh, for them to have your courage. Lord, we pray for those who are persecutors that you would turn them from Saul to Paul and transform them and make them part of the expansion of your kingdom. Lord, we do lift up our election on Tuesday. We do pray for those who have put themselves out there, those who have answered your call to serve their community in this way. And we just ask for um, just for your people to do their work, do their research, and to show up and to participate in our um, republic. And uh, we're grateful for that. We thank you for that privilege and pray that many, many Christian people will take advantage of it. Uh, we ask your blessing on this time together. In the name of Jesus, amen. So Gary Chapman, who wrote a book I really appreciate called The Five Love Languages, you may have heard it. He once said this, he said, The craving for love is our deepest emotional need from childhood onward. And that connection with others, that connection with God, that is wired into us. It is part of our makeup. Uh, there's a, I, I think it's hard to watch. It's an experiment. You can Google it, and it's called the still face experiment. And what they'll do is they'll have a mom come in or a dad uh, with their small child, say one years old. And they will, mom will do what she normally does, the interaction, the smiles, the connection, you know, the laughter. And, the, you know, they just back and forth, the child, they, they respond and there's this wonderful warmth and connection. And that child is soaking up and experiencing and responding to the love that's being shown. Now, let's say, then they do, they have the mother turn away and then she'll turn back. And she just gives a still face. No response. And so now this little one-year-old is bewildered and trying whatever she can to, you know, get mom to respond, get mom to engage. She feels cut off. She feels disconnected. And you can just watch. It's painful to watch. Uh, a small child will just very quickly start to just kind of emotionally disintegrate because they're not feeling uh, the love from their primary caregiver. And so this is wired within us to desire, to want love both from God and from other people. We're not meant to live in isolation. We're not meant to be alone. And so what I want to talk to you about today is the love of God, that ultimate love that connects with us, that we are made for. Now, I mentioned Gary Chapman, who wrote a book called The Five Love Languages, which I found very helpful, and I encourage you, if you're married, to read it. Um, and so the five love languages, just to give you a sense, are quality time, words of affirmation, gifts, acts of service, and physical touch. And the idea here is that in a marriage, in a, in a relationship, I think it's true in friendship, I think it's true with your children, that you have usually one or two primary ways that you feel loved. And you tend to express love in those one or two languages. And so what you find is often with married couples, um, and I definitely found this with my wife, that that, you know, I have a way, um, I'm words of affirmation is probably my top one. And so I tend to express myself in that way. Well, that's not her top 
love language. And so what happens is, is, you know, you tend to express yourself naturally. She tends to express herself naturally. And it's like, I'm speaking Spanish and she's speaking French and you miss each other. And so it's, it's a helpful concept. And so I encourage you to think about that. Now, when it comes to God, God is the author of love. He is the source of all love. And he is fluent in all love languages. I do individual spiritual plans with people, which if you've never done that, I encourage you to talk to me about it. It's something we offer. Take about an hour, ask lots of questions, try to figure out where you are spiritually. I take a few days to pray about it, think about it, and then we give you a plan on how you could move forward in your faith and grow. We've done hundreds of these here over the years. And one of the questions I most always ask is, when do you feel closest to God? When do you feel connected to God? And what I'm kind of digging into is helping somebody understand their love language with God, where they feel close to God. And so it might be they feel closest. A lot of men will say, well, I feel closest to God when I'm out in nature. And well, that's experiencing one of God's gifts. You know, that's, so that's, that's kind of your connecting point with God. And so I just, I want you to, I mentioned this because where we're going today is Romans chapter eight, the tail end of this particular chapter. And we're going to talk about the love of God. But I want to mention this because I've been in the church my entire life and I have felt it at times. And I certainly run into people that feel it, that they will say, yes, I believe God loves me. But they don't feel it here. So I wanted to just kind of mention the love language thing so that you think about that and try to experience the love of God, not just keep it up here. It's one thing to hear a talk about the sun. It's another to go and lay on a beach in Hawaii and experience the sun, right? Um, It's one thing to think about, well, touch, how, you know, God is invisible and how does that work? Well, it's interesting that God has given us um, kind of tactile experiences. For instance, you have the bread and the juice that we just participated in, in the Lord's Supper. A reminder, something concrete, something we touch to remind us of the great sacrifice of Jesus Christ. When you make the decision to follow Jesus Christ, we publicly baptize you over here. And so we dunk you in the water. You're identifying with the death of Christ uh, on the cross. We raise you out of the water. You're identifying with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You're being washed clean. It's a picture of what's happening in the heart. It shows you what's going on as you follow Christ. And what is that? That's a tactile experience. And so God kind of speaks in that touch love language. A lot of people in corporate worship, they'll experience like some kind of feeling and, and they're, you know, it's, it's a, it's a a sense of touch from God. You'll hear people say, I felt the presence of the Lord in my prayer time or my devotional or my corporate worship that I went to. And so I want you to not just think about, not just believe intellectually that God loves you, I want you to experience it. I want you to feel it. So God speaks all these love languages fluently. I appreciate Jeremiah chapter 31, 3. We'll get to Romans 8 in a second. The Lord appeared to us in the past saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with unfailing kindness. 
When you make the decision to follow Jesus Christ, you become part of the family. You are mine, he says. You belong to me. You're adopted into the family. And so, really, the Bible is a great love story. It's God creating us and reaching out to us. Now, we have rebellion. We've messed it up. We've broken it. But it is God reaching out to us in love and us responding to his love. I appreciate Psalm 136 where it says all these statements about, you know, he remembered us, he freed us, he gives us food. I mean, there's just all these statements. And after each statement, um, there's this refrain, his love endures forever. Because all these statements that, that David is throwing out are expressions of the love of God. And God expresses his love to us every day in multiple ways. Now, I grew up in church. Not everybody here did. I appreciated an old hymn called The Love of God. Maybe you remember it. And he talks about in one section in this hymn, could we with the ink, could we with ink the ocean fill and were the skies of parchment made were every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry nor could the scroll contain the whole though stretched from sky to sky. I don't remember who it was, but I read some Christian author said, our concept of the love of God, getting it, it's the love of God is like an ocean. And what we actually comprehend and understand is like the water in a thimble. And so I encourage you to invite the Holy Spirit to show you the God of love. The New Testament doesn't just say God has love or shows love. It actually says God is love. This is at the heart of who he is, is one of his key attributes and characteristics. Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39 is where our primary text is going to be this morning. And this is the Apostle Paul, who was Saul, the persecutor. We just heard about the persecuted church. The persecutor of the church runs into the risen Christ, experiences the love of God, and becomes Paul, the great missionary and apostle of the church. And here he writes to us in Romans chapter 8, verse 31 through 39 at the end about the love of God. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for all of us, um, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died. More than that, who was raised to life? is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or fame or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we shall face death all day long. So persecution. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And we have this beautiful poetic passage of scripture that points us to the love of God. See, what happens is we're all looking for love. You know, there's an old country song, looking for love in all the wrong places. And we see people doing that. 
But the ultimate love that will help us and satisfy us and fulfill us is in a relationship with God and with others that he places in our lives. And so we become God's beloved sons and daughters. And so this love that God offers us, according to this passage, has different elements. The first is that it is a love that is for us. In Romans 8.31, it says, if God is for us, who can be against us? Really, if you want to sum up the Bible in many ways, you could use that phrase, God is for us. He made us. He gave us all these incredible gifts in creation, life, gender, marriage, um, nature, gave us the plants to eat, um, all of that. Gave us beauty. Creation isn't just functional, it's beautiful. It moves us. And so we see that it's a love that is for us. Jeremiah 29, 11 says, and it's, this is a passage that has been meaningful to a lot of people. It's aimed at the Jewish people first, but I think all the people of God can grab hold of it. It's aimed at them at a difficult time where they're going into exile for 70 years. But God says this, even in this time of adversity and season of difficulty, that's going to feel like a lifetime. In Jeremiah 29, 11, he says to them, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. And so this love that he gives us is a love that is for us. The Apostle John says that God lavished his love on us. I love that word lavished. I appreciate a story about um, a dad and he had a little four-year-old daughter, and his four-year-old daughter, um, you know, it was this stormy night, and there was lots of lightning and thunder, and so the dad thought, I better go check on her. Maybe this is scary for her, all the noise and the lightning. And he goes up in her room, and she's actually standing on the windowsill of her big window in her room, and she's leaned up against the glass. And he's like, what are you doing? And his little girl said, I think God's trying to take my picture. And I love that. That's a little girl who, who gets how God feels about her. And that's powerful and profound. And her life will be affected by that. I mean, he gives us all kinds of evidence. The creation he gives us. Um, Jesus, the epitome of love. The love of others that he puts in our lives that are so meaningful. See, it is for you that God created the earth with majestic mountains and flowing rivers. It's for you that God sent Jesus to experiment the torment of the cross so that you could be forgiven. It's for you that God created marriage and family so that you could experience the love of other people. Look around. All that is good, we are told, comes from God. Tim Lane, an author I appreciate, said this. He said, I think we're all called to do a scavenger hunt in our life for the work of God in our life. Open your eyes to what God has done, how he has blessed you, how he has shown you his love. So it's a love that is for us. The second idea in our passage is a love that sacrificed for us. Sometimes somebody will say they love you, but they won't sacrifice for you. I appreciate what um, Brennan Manning, one author said, he said this, God loves us as we are, not as we should be. We are rebels. We are sinners. We have defied the God who made us. And yet 
God loves us as we are, not as we should be. You don't have to clean up your life first to come to Christ. He loves you right where you are. A love that was sacrificial. A love that is sacrificial. A love that sent his own son in our text, Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us, he will not also... Um, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? This is an echo. If you're a Jewish reader reading this, it's an echo back of Genesis chapter 22, where we have this scene that's, I mean, it's a tough scene, where Abraham and Sarah waited probably 25 years for this miracle child, Isaac. And then here he is, you know, he's grown up. We don't know exactly how old he is. And God says something startling and you're like shocked and like, what is going on? And he says, I want you to sacrifice your miracle child to me. It's a horrifying command. And Abraham with his son, they go on this three-day trek. Some historians and theologians believe they're going to the place where Christ was ultimately sacrificed. I don't know if that's accurate or not. But they go to this place and Abraham's willing to sacrifice his son. I cannot imagine the emotional turmoil of that moment. And at the last moment, God stops him and offers him something else to sacrifice, an animal to sacrifice. And then God says something interesting. He says, well, now I know. Now I know. Because Abraham was willing to give what was most precious to him. What he had waited a lifetime for in many ways to have a son. And the reality is for a Jewish reader in particular, they'd be like, and that standard that God applied to Abraham, now I know how much you love me, is applied to God. He was willing to give his son for us, for my sin, for your sin. It's a love that is sacrificial. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 6, Paul writes of Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all people. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 9 and 10, we see this. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. It can also be translated propitiation. I actually think that's a better translation. And propitiation is probably not something you talked about at breakfast. So just let me elaborate. Propitiation is the idea that the anger of God, the wrath of God against sin and rebellion is poured out on the sacrifice on Jesus Christ. And every drop of that pours out on him so that there's nothing left. There's nothing left for us because it's all taken. It's an atoning sacrifice, a propitiation. And so we see this, that God has sacrificed his son for us so that we can be forgiven. Which is the next part of the love we see in Romans chapter 8. A love that forgives. So if you were to back up and look at, and I can't do this whole chapter in one sitting. But if you go to the beginning of this chapter... It starts with saying there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. No condemnation. 
because it's the kind of love that forgives. Now that is a beautiful gift when that happens, right? You ever done something wrong and somebody forgives you? That is precious. You ever had somebody wrong you deeply and you forgive them? That gift costs something. We have a tendency to hold on to things. I don't know if this ever happens in your marriage, but you know something will come up and you're like, I thought we were past the statute of limitations. I, that's a while back. God's love is a love that forgives. Notice what it says in our text, Romans 8, 33 through 35. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. That means, and a great way to remember this, I was taught this as a kid, when you see the word justified, the idea is I'm treated just as if I'd never sinned. So that's how we're treated by God. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Jesus is not our prosecuting attorney against us. He is our defense attorney. He stands up where we deserve judgment. He stands up and says, hey, they're with me. I paid that penalty. I paid that price. I paid the sentence. There's nothing left for them. God is the one who justifies. He's the ultimate judge. If he says you're not guilty... If he says the penalty's paid, if he says it's finished, then it's finished. And so we can walk in that. Philip Yancey says that God seems to, after reading the Bible, he says, seems like God has a soft spot for rebels. And I think he does, and that's our only hope. Now, a love that forgives it's, it's a startling thing. It's somewhat shocking at times. In the Old Testament, we have the story of Jonah. You know, the famous part is the whole being swallowed by a whale. But the reason he's going that way is because Jonah hated these people, the Ninevites. The Assyrian Empire hated them. They were the enemies of Israel. And God said, I want you to go and I have this message and the message was of their destruction, but inherent in the message was if you repent, then you know, I'll forgive you. I'll hold back from destroying you. And Jonah, he goes the other way because he knows God is gracious. God is loving and doesn't want to destroy the city of Nineveh. And so Jonah runs away, but he, you know, he's kind of forced into it. He goes, he preaches the message, and then he sits down to watch because he's hoping he's gonna, gonna see the, you know, the city wiped out. And he's really upset when God doesn't do it because the city experiences this incredible revival. I mean, they just repented in sackcloth and ashes. I mean, the whole city, the king. I mean, they're putting sackcloth on the animals, which I'm not sure what that's about. But it was like they were just, we are sorry, Lord. They believed it. And Jonah was all ticked off because the kind of love that God offers, surprisingly, shockingly, is the kind of love that forgives. It forgives. And it gives us a new righteousness. Author Andrew Farley has an exercise he does with 
audiences that he says is helpful. I think it's helpful for you to think about. He'll say to, he'll say to the group, he'll say, how many of you raise your hand if you think you're as righteous as I am? And he said, you know, he goes, I don't know what my reputation is, he goes, but most of the audience will raise their hand. How many of you think you're as righteous as Mother Teresa? And he said, I'll watch a bunch of hands drop. How many of you think you're as righteous as the Apostle Paul? More hands drop. How many think you're as righteous as Jesus? And he goes, almost, you know, pretty much every hand drops. He goes, but the reality of the gospel, part of the good news, is that we get the righteousness of Christ. We are justified. We're treated as if we never sinned. It's shocking. It's incredible. When we stand before God, he looks and he sees, he sees, yeah, he knows everything. But he sees the righteousness of Christ. Isaiah talks about it like a robe of righteousness. In the New Testament, it's talked about like um, that, that we are clothed in Christ. And so we get this, that the love God offers us is a love that forgives. In Acts chapter 2, verse 38, we have the beginning of the church and the apostle Peter has, you know, being a direct guy, he gives gets up in front of a Jewish audience. He says, look, you killed your own Messiah. The one you've been waiting for, you killed him. They're cut to the heart. They're like, so they believe. And they're like, well, what do we do? And he says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So notice here, you have a love that forgives that's offered to them. They're supposed to respond. A love that gives, that forgives. And then what happens is it leads us to the next part, because we receive the Holy Spirit, it's a love that transforms. It's a love that transforms us. Because we have the power of the Holy Spirit, He dwells within us. God loves you where you are, but He loves you too much to leave you there. He wants you to grow better. He wants you to be mature. He wants you to become the person He created you to be. You see, God finishes what He starts and he has started a good work in you. He started a good work in me. And so we change and we grow. Notice in our text, Romans 8, 37. In all these things, we are made more than conquerors through him who loved us. So whatever it is that's holding you back, that's keeping you from flourishing and thriving as God wants you to, to walk in a life of holiness and authenticity and compassion, you can conquer that through the power of the Holy Spirit, through Christ. Stephen Curtis Chapman, a singer, says this. It's like God holds on to us, gives us a hug, and says, I'm going to love you into something better. I'm going to love you into something better. You parents, isn't that we, what we do with our kids? We love them where they're at. But we don't want the same behavior at two that we saw at 2 at 22, right? We love them into something more mature. And God does that with us. It's a love that transforms. That environment of love transforms us. It's, it's not, you know, just a bunch of rules. Not just the law. That doesn't transform. Tony Evans tells a story about a woman that married a guy and... and he was a pretty good guy in some ways, but he had this one really difficult characteristic. And this particular characteristic is this guy had a list. He'd written out a list of 25 ways that, of what he thought it meant for his wife to be a good wife to him. 
and he had all these sheets of paper with the 25 list, you know, listed items. And at the end of each day, I, I'm blown away by this guy. He would rank, he would tell her her score. Like you got 21 out of 25, 18 out of 25. So men in the audience, do not try this at home. Not a good idea. So he dies, not under suspicious circumstances. He dies. She marries again. And this husband is, is a good guy, but a lot better, in, and particularly in this regard. And he doesn't have a list. And he doesn't do that. And it's this environment of loving her. And not, you know, just this set of rules that she's supposed to keep. And she said one day, she's, you know, messing around. She opens this old drawer. And she said, I found one of those papers with the 25 items from my first husband. And she said, I stopped and I read it. And she goes, that day I had done all 25 for my second husband. You see, it wasn't about law it was about love they weren't bad things that he had asked her to do and in an environment where we are loved we do change and grow we do flourish and thrive and so you know and it's interesting and you're like well god does give us laws and rules he does he's god and we're not just as when we're parents and you have children you have to help people grow but even when he does that, they are expressions of his love. And he, like even before the Ten Commandments, he talks about, I'm the God that rescued you from Egypt, from slavery. He's like, I reached out in love, and this is a chance for you to respond. This is a chance for you to live better and become better. And so, and even the bad stuff in life, God is working it for our good to help us become the person he wants us to be, that we could potentially be. Romans 8.28 says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been, a called, have been called according to his purpose. And so we are more than conquerors. We're people who can flourish and thrive. And the last part of love that's mentioned by the Apostle Paul is that the love of God is a love that stays. It's a love that's permanent. It's not a wishy-washy love. It's a love that hangs in there and fulfills its purpose. In John chapter 13, verse 1, um, we have Jesus. It's talking about Jesus. And it's the line at the end that catches me. It says, having loved his own who were in the world, talking about those disciples, those followers, he loved them to the end. He loved them to the end. He's faithful. He hangs in with them. It's a love that stays in our passage, it says in Romans chapter 8, verse 38 and 39, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. It is an, there's an assurance there. When you adopt a child into the family, you don't, you know, you might send them to the corner to think about what they've done if they do something wrong. You don't kick them out of the family. There's an assurance there. There's a confidence. There's a love that stays and sticks with us. 
Now, somebody's going to come ask me, so I want to I be clear. So I, I'm a free will guy. I believe God gives us free will. So at 52 years of age, even though I've been a Christian since you know, I was a little child, I believe that I could say, forget the whole thing. I'm out. I reject God. I reject Jesus. And I could leave the faith. I think I have the free will to do that. So I'm not a once saved, always saved guy. That annoys some people. Others you know, agree with me. That's fine. But I want you to understand this. My wife grew up in a group that you just kind of fell in and out of salvation. And heaven forbid if Jesus returned and you happen to have sinned five minutes before he returns, because you're out. That is not the love that's talked about here. God's side of the equation does not change. Yes, I can disown my heavenly father. But my heavenly father does not disown me. And so he loves us. And he hangs in there with us. And so I'm not, you know, saved against my will or anything like that. We can get into all that theology. But I want you to understand this. Please don't have this, like what my wife grew up in, this just back and forth. And you have a bad month, a bad season, a bad year. You're still in the family. God loves you. is an incredible, gracious, enduring, persevering love. I'm not once saved, always saved. I'm once almost always saved. Meaning, I can walk away. I can exit. But as long as I keep reaching out to Him, I'm in the family. And so, I want you to understand this. We are anchored in the love of God. It is a gracious, persistent love. And so, the big idea is this. To the very core of our being, I want you to know that God loves you. Not just up here, but here. To the very core of your being, I want you to know that God loves you. My prayer is that you'll respond to that. You'll make a decision to follow him. That you'll recommit if you've kind of been wandering. And we're going to close. I'm going to pray and then they'll do a song. And it's, I want you to really think about the lyrics of the song. It's by Matthew West, a God. It's a God who stays. You may have had a spouse look you in the eye and said, you know, I'm done. I don't love you anymore. God won't do that. You may have a child that you gave birth to, that you invested in, that you prayed for, that you love, and they have rejected you. God won't do that. He is a God who stays. He offers us that kind of love. Let's pray. Dear God, I thank you that in a world where we often experience the fickleness of human love, but also the beauty of it. Lord, I thank you that there is something deeper and richer and eternal. And that is the love that makes up this core of your character. Lord, I pray that each of us would experience that, not just in our heads, but in our hearts 
and that we would turn around and be channels of that love to those around us. This is our prayer in the powerful name of Jesus Christ, the epitome, the greatest illustration, the walking example, the full expression of your love. In his name we pray, amen.